Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. There's a very natural human tendency to think that because something happened some way, it had to happen that way. That's author Bob Thompson discussing his new book, Revolutionary Roads, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is author Bob Thompson, and he'll be discussing his new book, Revolutionary Roads, Searching for the War that Made America Independent, and All the Places that Could Have Gone Terribly Wrong. Bob Thompson has written a very fun, very unique book about the history of the American Revolution. It's a road trip through some of the most fascinating and important places in the history of 18th century America, and it's wonderful. It's irreverent, it's funny, I'd recommend it to anyone. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Bob Thompson. Bob Thompson, thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Bob, tell us about your background. Uh, I should probably start by saying that I dropped out of grad school in history after three weeks. Uh, there were several reasons for that, but mainly it was I didn't. I was a kid, and I just graduated from college, and I liked history, and I didn't know what I was doing. And when I got there, I realized that everybody was very nervous about getting jobs three or four or five years down the line. And I thought, well, nah. Um, but I love history, and um, I went on to be a house painter and a librarian and wandered into journalism. Uh, eventually got to the Washington Post, where I spent 24 very um, happy years um, doing long-form feature writing, both as a writer and an editor. And I often gravitated to history-related stories. So there must have been something going on there back when I decided to go to grad school. Bob, what made you want to take on a project like this and write this book? Well, this is a book that's really a follow-up to the first book I wrote. After I left the post, I was looking for a project where I could combine my journalistic training with my interest in history. I ended up doing a, a book about Davy Crockett, of all things. Um, it's called Born on a Mountaintop. And I went everywhere the real Crockett had gone and sought out people who knew a whole lot more about him and his story than I did. I read everything relevant I could lay my hands on also. And then I wove those things together into uh, what I, I tend to call traveling history. Uh, it's certainly not a form I invented. Um, Tony Horwitz, for one, was a, a master practitioner. But I enjoyed it so much that I went looking for something else I could do the same way. And that turned out to be the American Revolutionary War. Talk about your thought processes when designing this book. 
There have been countless histories on the war already. What makes your book unique? Well, when you say countless histories, no kidding. Um, I own hundreds of them, and there are thousands more. Um, But to my knowledge, at least, no one had done the kind of first-person traveling history of the whole war that I was planning, in which I would weave those multiple threads together, as I had with the first book, into what I hoped would be a lively but accurate narrative. Um, I was also hoping that it would appeal both to those who already knew a fair amount about the war and to those like most Americans today, including me when I started, who don't know very much about it. And one of the things they don't know is the fact that it didn't have to turn out the way it did. You begin your journey in Massachusetts. Bob, can you talk about that? Well, I actually start the book with a long introduction that's set in South Carolina at the Battle of Cowpens. And the reason I did that was I wanted to signal to readers that much of the story would unfold in places less familiar than Lexington and Concord. But that said, Massachusetts is the first place I went when I got in my car and drove off to start reporting. Uh, I grew up 10 to 12 miles from Lexington and Concord. Um, But despite that and having been there, I didn't know really very much about what had happened at those places when I decided to do the book. Uh, and that was that was actually one of the appeals of, of choosing the topic, which in retrospect was far too large, uh, but I could get to learn about it. Um, in terms of Massachusetts, I had no clue at all that there had been a kind of a dress rehearsal for Lexington and Concord, known as the powder alarm, several months earlier. Um, fortunately for me, um, John Bell, J.L. Bell, who, who writes the fabulous blog, Boston 1775, agreed to walk me around Brattle Street in Cambridge and tell me how the war almost broke out there in 1774 and to explain why it was crucial that it didn't. Another eye-opening Massachusetts walk I took was to follow the route of the British troops as they retreated from Concord, during which the really serious fighting on April 19th began. Um, Lexington and Concord, which are deeply interesting to me in their own ways, and which I learned a lot about, were essentially skirmishes. But a mile into that British retreat, um, at a place called Merriam's Corner, um, things started to get really serious. And you can see how it happened. This is one of the one of the great things about traveling and and being places where where things happened. Um, at Merriam's Corner, the British were on the road um, from Concord, more or less where the road is today, heading back to Boston. And they had sent out flankers, um, sensibly enough, um, to walk along a ridge above the road and the rebel militia, the, the, some of them who had fought at, at the old North bridge and some who hadn't, um, they were keeping their distance and a respectful distance, but then the ridge ran out and the ridge runs out at Merriam's corner 
and you can stand there and look at it and see what happened because the flankers came down off the ridge. It's a swampy area. There's a little creek uh, stream, and they just naturally converged on a small bridge to get over that stream because they didn't want to get their feet wet. And that was a really bad idea because the the militia came closer and closer as 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 the flankers converged to join with the main force and somebody fired a shot. We still don't know which side, um, just as we don't know which side fired the first shot at Lexington for sure. Um, but that was when the real serious fighting began and it lasted the rest of the afternoon as they as they marched back. Um, in considerable disarray to uh, Lexington and then got some reinforcements and went, ended up on Bunker Hill. Uh, there's a lot more to say about Massachusetts, but um, I could go on and on, but I think I think we should probably move on to, to something besides my home state. Bob, let's talk about characters. Which figures impressed you the most during your research? Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you said, most impressive or the most interesting because there's a lot of impressive characters, um, but a lot of them are complicated and, and um, what makes them interesting are the complications. And George Washington, of course, is, is central and he is a very good example of that. Um, He was extremely impressive as I learned um, as a leader and as an astute politician, especially when he was coming under political attack by those on his own side. But I was startled to learn how much less impressive he was as a purely military leader. And uh, one of the places I learned that was on a very good tour of the Brandywine battlefield, um, where he did one thing wrong after another. Um, Another character who impressed me largely positively throughout the war, um, and again, I was kind of looking for through characters here in some ways, Daniel Morgan, um, who, who begins and ends almost with the war. Um, one of the most impressive, strongest, charismatic leaders and smartest original thinkers, despite his lack of education um, in the whole war. Um, I spend a fair amount of time talking about what he did at Cowpens, which is, again, complicated, but just an impressive man. The unimpressive thing about him, which is certainly not um, not confined to him, is uh, that he got in a huff because somebody less skilled than he was, but higher ranking, got a job he wanted. And and he went home. But he came back in time to be extremely important at the end of the war. Uh, I will mention Robert Morris, who's somebody I knew almost nothing about when I started and who was not somebody who was in combat. But he's the so-called financier of the revolution. And when you find out what that meant, you see how underplayed his his role really was. Um, the French, let me just say the French, and I don't just mean Lafayette, who is a, an important person, but 
also a classic example of how scary on-the-job training can be. He had never had he never been in a battle before he showed up at age 19. But the the French, who I think were truly impressive and important in in the war and its and its conclusion, were Rochambeau and de Grasse, uh, without whom Yorktown would not have happened. Um, I do not wish to leave out Nathaniel Green, who made a very devastating mistake early in the war and then more than made up for it with his performance first as quartermaster general, which he did not want to be. And then when he was sent south to rescue a a very desperate situation there. And finally, I guess I would say there's a there's a category of men who I somewhat facetiously call um, unknown dudes who accidentally saved the revolution. Um, They're people whose names we don't know, and they did things that they didn't even know they were doing were important. And and my favorite example of that is a is a man named James Livingston, who was stationed um, on the Hudson River a ways below West Point at the time when uh, Benedict Arnold was trying to um, betray it to the to the British. And Livingston, for reasons which have never been entirely clear, got irritated by a British sloop of war that was a little too close to him, and it's a complicated story, but he fired on it, hit it, um, drove it, caused it to sail south, and that was the that was the warship that um, Benedict Arnold had counted on being there, so that his uh, his uh, co-conspirator John Andre could get in the boat and sail away after they'd had a conversation about about their um, treacherous plan. And as a result of that, through a whole series of other sequences, Andre was captured, the plan was foiled, and uh, West Point did not fall. And there are many people who believe that if it had fallen at that time, that that, that might have been the end for the, uh, for the uh, American side. So James Livingston, remember that name. Let's move on to New York. How do you find the revolution? amongst the busiest city in the world today? Well, this is an opportunity for me to say that it's not the only place this happened, but it was particularly important for me in New York to have a guide who knew where things were because I never would have found a lot of those places by my own. And his name is Barnett Schechter. He's the author of a book called The Battle for New York. And we spent most of a day walking around Brooklyn, not just walking, we, we uh, took the subway and, and uh, things, but we walked a lot. And he showed me where the British had fooled the Americans by doing a classic flank attack through a place called Jamaica Pass, which is unrecognizable today. Um, because of what happened to Brooklyn in the 19th century. Uh, he then showed me, we, we stood at the place in, in the Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood where the British had fired a cannon to let um, 
another arm of the of the uh, attacking force know that they were there and and now they could they could uh, both attack at the same time. Uh, we went to two different cemeteries. We went to Prospect Park, Park Slope. We crossed over what is now the Gowanus Canal, which was then a, a big marsh that was very difficult for the fleeing uh, Washington's fleeing men to get across. And that's just the disastrous Battle of Brooklyn, which was the first in a disastrous campaign for for all of New York, which which failed. But I just I can't emphasize enough that that the way I found it was by having um, Schechter guide me. Bob, there have been many turning points in the revolution. Where do you place your turning point in this story? Do I only get one? <laughs> Sorry, I know I know what you mean. Uh, the book is basically one turning point after another. Um, starting, you know, one early one is Bunker Hill, which if if that battle had gone differently, there might not have been an army for George Washington to take over when he arrived in Cambridge. And then it goes all the way to the end of the war and Lord Cornwallis's decision not to go back to South Carolina and, and to go up to Virginia, which is something that uh, Jim Pikich told me about and which had never occurred to me as a turning point. But if I have to pick just one, I, I'm going to pick what I think it's certainly my favorite, but I also think it's incredibly important, which is the Second Battle of Trenton, or the Battle of Second Trenton, I guess it's called, um, also called the Battle of Essen Pink Creek. Um, I very rarely run into anyone who knows about this. Um, I would if I were talking to JAR folks, but but just walking around normally, it's not known. Uh First Trenton itself was a, was an enormously important turning point, which I think, especially most of our listeners know about. Um, but Second Trenton um, basically uh, it's a case where Washington wasn't sure what he could do, but he was about to lose most of his army, who which were going to where their enlistments were up. And he had a kind of a notion that he could march or uh, row them back across the Delaware to Trenton, where there some other um, Philadelphia um, militia were going to meet him. But he didn't really know what he was going to do. In the meantime, the British were mad as hornets about first, first Trenton and Cornwallis, who had been planning to go back to England for the winter, um, was up in Princeton, ready to come down and take him out. One of the great characters there, who's, who's a little better known than James Livingston, but not that well known, is Edward Hand, who ended up being the commander of a delaying action against the British as they were marching south from Princeton. And I, I won't go into the details of that, but it was incredibly important because if Cornwallis's men had gotten to Trenton earlier in the day, they probably could have done what they originally intended to do, which was to close off Washington's escape routes. And um, the fact was that there was a great delaying action and there was a fierce hour-long fight 
in, in the late in the afternoon uh, where the British could not um, get themselves across the bridge. And, and, and then they said, well, we'll get them in the morning. And um, if that situation had gone differently um, at Second Trenton, uh, Washington's army would have been toast, and we would not know about about First Trenton today. It wouldn't have mattered because because um, the the defeat at Second Trenton would have would have overwhelmed that earlier that earlier history. Let's talk about North and South Carolina. Those sites are very different than a lot of other sites. Uh, what site stands out to you the most there? Well, there's a long list of them, but I'll I'll go through them. Um, and I'm glad we're there because what happens to the South or has happened over and over in the, in the telling of the story is that it, it kind of gets left to the end and, and it gets underplayed. And so, you know, here we are having say the battle of Monmouth, um, which happened in 1778 and, Ooh, guess what? Now we're at Yorktown. And, um, I know a lot of guys in the South who are pretty irritated by this and they, persuaded me that it was irritating, but, um, I spent a good deal of time in the South with, again, a lot of help from, from people I met there, um, and taking them in more or less chronicle chronological order. Um, the first move the British made in the South was uh, at least after after 1778, they 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 took Savannah, um, and they took it very easily. And then the following year, they had to defend it against a French fleet and a fair sized army, and they defended it very very well. And and so they they kept Savannah. And and that was what persuaded uh, Henry Clinton, the British commander in chief up in New York, that um, okay, it was time to go down and, and take Charleston. And so, long story short, he did that. He he sailed down with uh, at first upwards of eight thousand men. I think there were some more later, and um, besieged Charleston. And uh, among the things that happened there was that there was a, a pretty obscure battle, at least to me, in a place called Monk's Corner, which um, closed off a lot of the escape route for Charleston. Not everything quite, but that was an important battle. Um, and Charleston itself was defended by a fairly large continental force that was trapped in there. And there was a way they could have left the city before um, having to surrender. And this is a complicated story, but the civilian powers that be in Charleston uh, refused to let them do that, um, which is a, a was a devastating thing. Shortly after uh, Charleston fell, um, there was a non-famous 
but tremendously important uh, battle at a place called the Waxhaws on the we're 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 out um on the frontier now. Um it was a frontier settlement and a few remaining uh continentals who had not made it to Charleston in time to have to s- surrender were heading back towards North Carolina. And um Bannister Tarleton, who is a, a figure of some note in this story, uh was sent after them to see if he could uh see if he could prevent them from from escaping. And what happened there, again, it's an intensely complicated story, but it was a devastating one-sided battle. The uh, the American commander, for reasons that are unknown, decided that he was going to line his men up and tell them not to fire at a cavalry charge until it was practically right on top of them. And, and it, it was... It was something that looked like a massacre and felt like a massacre, and whether that's the right term for it has been argued ever since. But the importance of the battle was not so much that Tarleton won it, but that the backcountry South Carolinians felt that it had been a massacre and were furious, and it made recruiting easier, and it made... it made. Um, it changed a lot of the political atmosphere that that helped win the war. Uh, I am leaving out a very important chunk here um, because it's very complicated. But there's a there's a period when um, I'm not going to leave it entirely out. There's there's no American army in the South after after Charleston for a while, and. The Battle of King's Mountain, which I think is somewhat well known, is one of the most remarkable events of the war. Um, again, keeping it short, um, essentially the left wing of Charles Cornwallis's army uh, is wandering around trying to recruit more people and trying to put the fear of the British into the rebels. And rebel militia, no no professional soldiers involved here. Uh, some of them from over the mountains in, in East Tennessee, what's now East Tennessee, those are known as the over mountain men. They, uh, they come over the mountains and join forces with militia from North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia. And... Uh, Patrick Ferguson, the leader of, of Cornwallis's guys, is trapped on what's really a low ridge. It's not really a mountain. And they surround him and take him out. So it's, a, it's a bloody, horrible battle with, with an aftermath that's, that's a, little, um, a little discouraging if you don't like people to be killed after they've surrendered. Um, but it was an absolutely crucial battle, and it caused Cornwallis to delay his move north for uh, a year. He had to go into winter quarters. And during that time, uh, guess who came south? That would be Nathaniel Green to kind of put the army back together. Um, I have left out, oh my goodness, I'm going to leave out the Battle of 
Camden, which which also crucial, but it's it's screwing up my chronology here. Um, no, no, I can do Camden. Um, let me start over. Camden, um, Horatio Gates, the hero of Saratoga, uh, because he was in command there, although there were other um, heroes. Uh, Gates is sent down to take over the remnants of the uh, Continental Army in the South and try to build it up again. And he is crushed by Cornwallis at Camden. And that seems to be that seems to be about it. Um, Kings Mountain happens after Cang- Camden, and Nathaniel Green is on his way south. He barely knows that he doesn't he doesn't know who the people are who fought it, but um, it gives him time to gather himself, and it gives Daniel Morgan time to rejoin the army. This is followed by the Battle of Cowpens, which which opens my book and which um, is a remarkable small battle that, um, again, a turning point because um, Tarleton was matched up against Morgan's men uh, and he was badly defeated with, with hundreds of men captured. Um, Cornwallis comes tearing after him, um, and then happens the thing which when you say to people, even in the South, you say, race to the Dan, and certainly up North, they don't know what that is. But what happened was that Cornwallis desperately wanted to catch up with Morgan and the prisoners and with um, Green, who eventually joined forces with Morgan, having having split his forces beforehand. Uh, and that leads to the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, one of the one of the most bloody, most dramatic battles of the war, which technically the British won because they held the field. But in practice, they lost 25% of their men killed or wounded, and they could no longer um, stay in, in, in the interior of the Carolinas, and they headed for the coast at Wilmington. Um, I think I've just been babbling on here for a long time, but there is a lot to be said about the, the uh, war in the South, and I hope I've said some of it in the book. Bob, how do you decide to conclude a study like this? Well, I... The obvious place to wrap things up is Yorktown. And I resisted that for a while, and I'll tell you why. Um, Yorktown was a battle that would not have happened if the French fleet had not arrived at the right time, which is a whole story in itself. If the British Navy had been um, doing the sensible thing, they never would have let them out of the out of the harbor in France, and they 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 could have have stopped that from happening. Uh, the British the British admiral in charge in the Caribbean made uh, a couple of bad mistakes. Anyway, the French fleet, after a series of minor miracles, showed up at Yorktown right at the right time to um, trap Cornwallis there. 
And what I wanted to end the book with, which I decided not to do, was the naval battle between a British fleet that came down from New York and the French fleet, which was in the Chesapeake, um, that took place out of the sight of land. I went, I went, I made my way into a military base called Fort Story, which, which took some doing to, I mean, they went through the car with a fine tooth comb and they warned me that if I went any, anywhere past the little park that I was heading for, I'd be in trouble. But you walk out, there's some sand dunes, there's a couple of rusty binoculars and you can look out into the Atlantic where this battle happened. And if you had been there at the time, you would have been able to hear it. You would have been able to hear the broadsides, but you couldn't have seen it. And it would have been days afterwards before you knew what had happened. And had the British driven the French off in that battle, uh, Yorktown would not have happened. So that, that, that to me is, is, if not the most important battle in the Revolutionary War, it's certainly right up there. And it was fought by the French and the British. No Americans were involved. But um, once I came to write, I felt that Yorktown, first of all, turned out to be much more interesting than I had understood it to be. And it's also, that's actually the culminating moment um, where where it, it tips the balance and, and eventually eventually the war will end. So I, I ended up with a with a, uh, a really great staff ride at, at Yorktown with with uh, a man called John Stull who uh, who had helped me out before, and um, that's that's pretty much where the book ends. Um, I, I, the, the last paragraph or so of it or the last few paragraphs have to do with um uh, a, an address that washington gave to his troops when when the war was finally over and that's something which i think i can't summarize but it's it's uh it's washington looking back on all the all of the things that might have been different and and that seemed appropriate for me bob we asked this question to everyone it gets to the heart uh, as what we, of what we do as historians how do you think this story helps us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, the way I hope that it will do that is by underlining what hindsight does to our understanding of history. We know how the war came out, and we know that our side is going to win. And therefore, there's a very natural human tendency to think that because something happened some way, it had to happen that way. And what I think that the overall, what I, the most important overall historical impact of the book, um, other than being entertaining and informative and fun to read and all those things is to remind the reader over and over and over again by with examples that things did not have to go the way they went. It's not as though we 
it's not as though one turning point would have caused us to lose the war necessarily. It's just that we don't know what would have happened if something had something different had occurred at, for instance, Cowpens. We just don't know. And um, one final thought on this, um, which I hope is also clear in the book, is that the war did not have to end with one side or the other being fully victorious. There was a very good chance that the French, who were kind of sick of throwing resources um, at this war, and the uh, some of the other European powers would have gotten together and um, and worked out a settlement. And if that settlement had happened, um, the, much of the Deep South would have been left in British hands because it was under their control at the time. And New York City, Long Island, and everything west of the Appalachians, which turned out to come to the United States in the actual peace settlement, would have been uh, left in, in British hands. And so you can see what a difference that would have made to the, to the history of the brand new United States. Bob Thompson, thanks again. Thank you, Brady. This was a pleasure. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.